Now, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 and Daniel chapter 4. We're in our series, Letters to the Exiles. And in this, Peter has been writing to the churches in what is modern-day Turkey, and he's been encouraging them in how it is that they are to live out the life in Christ that they have now found. See, for uh, most of the people, originally in the church, it was all Jewish people that saw Jesus as the Messiah and now became followers of the way, is what it was called. And for them, they were used to being outsiders. Because when they were conquered by several different people, what they would do is they would exile them into all parts of the empire that they were now part of as a way of dispersing them so they didn't rebel against the new ruler. And most people, when you get kicked out of your home country and you're living somewhere else, you just begin to adopt the ways, the customs, and the culture of the new place that you find yourself in. But the Jews didn't do this. Well, most of them didn't do this. They kept their cultural and religious identity as Jewish people. And this was a model of the way now that we are to live our lives. Peter's saying, you guys know what it's like to be in exile, to live as strangers in a land, that even though you live in this place, your citizenship isn't really here. It belongs somewhere else. He says that now as Christians, that's the way that we live our lives, that we live in the midst of a culture that is different from the culture that we're really a part of in heaven. And what we need to do is not to be swayed and to become like those who are around us, but we exist as a colony of heaven to express the culture of the kingdom of heaven to those who are around us. We're supposed to be influencing them instead of us being influenced by them. And that's the way that we continue to spread the light of God's glory everywhere that we go. And as he's writing now to them in chapter 5, he says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Uh, as we read that, it's impossible to hear the word lion right now without thinking about Cecil the lion. You know, I, like, there's never been a lion this famous since Simba, I don't think. And, you know, it's all over the news, it's all over. You can tell what's really on people's hearts by social media. Like, there's stuff on the news all the time. But when you look at what people are posting on their walls and sharing, like, that's how you can tell what's really struck a chord in the heart of America. And it's been really interesting to see the outrage over the poaching of this lion. You know, it's a symbol of the national pride and heritage of Zimbabwe that was poached by an American. And this guy now has received death threats. His business has been closed. He's hiding out. They're vandalizing his homes. Like, this guy is on the run. He messed with the wrong lion. And it's interesting reading some of the articles of the way that we as Americans view this event and then seeing some of the people that have interviewed people from Zimbabwe asking them how they feel about this. And it's funny because in all the interviews, most of the people are like, who's Cecil? <laughs> like we think this is like, if we had an eagle that was named Sam and that was what was America, we view Cecil as that way. And they're like, who is Cecil? I guess the lion that was poached. They're like, oh, it was killed? They're like, yeah, oh, that's great. Lions are terrible. <laughs> and we're like, what are you talking about? How, how can you have this different view of it? Because there's a disconnect between the way that we in the West view a lion and the way that people in Zimbabwe view a lion. So when we think of lions, we think of the Lion King. 
these noble beasts that have been raised up to defeat their nefarious uncles and rule over a pride. We go to the zoo and we see lions. And what are they doing? They're just laying there. They never move. Occasionally a tail will twitch. I'm not even sure if they're real lions. But they're fat, they're lazy, they're docile. We're leaning over the pits like, do something. And they just never do anything. And if one does by chance roar, which I've never actually heard, People flip out, oh my gosh, did you hear that? That was so awesome. Let's go run over to the lion pit and see the lions. But in Zimbabwe, like, they don't view lions as these cute, cuddly kitties that you just want to play with and scratch their chins. Over there, they're death machines. If you're out in the wild and you're in the Serengeti and you hear the lions roar, it is too late for you. You do not want to run into a lion. And it's funny, reading their response, they're like, why are you guys crying? I remember the late night talk show host was choking up crying about this lion dying. And people saw this and they wanted their reaction to it. Like, why are you crying about that? Why don't you cry for the people that are killed by the lions every year? Why don't you cry when the one-third of our children that are malnourished are starving to death? Why don't you cry when we die from malaria? Why are you so worked up about this lion? Now, we shouldn't go around poaching lions. That's something we shouldn't do. But we need to understand that the way that someone in Zimbabwe views a lion is different because they understand the true nature of a lion, whereas we see them as something that they're not. They are not cuddly kitties. They are not docile animals that you want to scratch and pet. We view them as something safe because when you see a caged lion, that's not a real lion. They weren't meant to live in cages. It changes them. It changes their very nature. And the same thing happens to us in the way that we view our enemy, the devil. I think too many times we take an approach to him of he's like the caged lion. You kind of go over there and you look at him. Is that even real? You know, Satan's become a mythological creature to us. The way that we view Satan has been shaped by movies. It's been shaped by the way that kids come dressed up in red horns and a pitchfork at your door for Halloween. We've got this safe, docile, caged, domesticated view of the devil, if we even believe in him anymore. And it's not accurate. We don't understand the true danger and threat that Satan poses to us because we don't understand the true nature of the devil himself. And this is what God says about the nature of Satan. He says that he is a roaring lion. And he's seeking people to devour. That's not good. I don't want to be devoured. But what it does, it says that Satan comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's his intent. See, God has a plan for your life. He wants to prosper your soul. He wants to use you. He wants to bless you so that now you can go out and you can bless those that are around you. But Satan has a plan for your life too. And he wants to bring destruction in your life. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour your family, your friends, your destiny, everything. It's the exact opposite of what God wants to do. But Satan's pretty smart. Because you see, in the same way that God wants to use you as a way to bless those who are around you, Satan wants to use you to destroy those who are around you. And the number one weapon that Satan will use in your life to work out his plan for you is pride. And pride is this. It's a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority. And really, it's a brilliant strategy. See, if God wants to bless you, and if he's called you to be a servant of all of those who are around you in order to then extend his blessing to them, the way that Satan stops that 
is by causing pride to rise up inside of you, to instead of recognizing that your blessings came from God, to think that somehow you have earned these things, that these are the works of your hand. And instead of recognizing that these are blessings that you're supposed to use now to pour out onto other people, you begin to think that I'm supposed to hold on to these things because I've earned them and other people haven't. If they worked hard enough or if they were like me, then they could enjoy the same things that I have. And so you begin to expect other people now, instead of serving them, you want them to serve you. You begin to view other people not as those that you're supposed to pour yourself out for, but those who are supposed to pour themselves out to meet your needs, your wants, and your desires. What pride ultimately leads you to is self-worship. That's an ugly thing. Nobody wants to be proud. Nobody likes being around someone who is proud. Have you ever been around someone that was very proud? It's not attractive. Nobody likes those people. But it's so easy for us to find ourselves as a proud people as well. Because Satan is a lion. He comes to devour. And he will use pride as the way that he devours God's calling and God's destiny in your life. But there's another line that the Bible talks about. And that's Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And while Satan might come to roar, to destroy, to bring fear into you, to stir up pride, to bring destruction, it says that when Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, roars, it defeats the work of the enemy, it brings freedom to us, it brings destiny into our very being. And God's not easily defeated. He is warring against the works of Satan. While he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, God comes that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. And this is an interesting way that God does this. The way that God fights against pride in our lives, the way that he counters the work of Satan in our lives in the area of pride, is by opposing you. This is what it says. It says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, there are a lot of things I want God to do in my life. I want him to bless me. I want him to reveal himself to me. I want him to, uh, you know, work in the hearts of my children so that they would grow up to know God and to follow him. I want him to move in the lives of my friends and my family and inside of our city. I want him to move inside of Radiant Church. The one thing I don't want God to do is to oppose me. But this is the way that he does it. And we see the example of it in Daniel chapter 4 with King Nebuchadnezzar. God has a plan for King Nebuchadnezzar's life. He pours out incredible blessing upon King Nebuchadnezzar, makes him powerful, makes him wealthy, gives him a great platform and influence over other people. And he did this so that King Nebuchadnezzar could rule justly over them and bring blessing to the people that were in his kingdom. But instead of of blessing other people and remaining humble in his blessings from the Lord, it says that he becomes proud. And so God warns him in a dream and says, Nebuchadnezzar, if you continue to be proud and allow pride to rule in your heart, then your kingdom is going to be taken from you. And he gives him 12 months after this. And Daniel's like, King Nebuchadnezzar, please humble yourself. You do not want to happen what is about to happen. But he doesn't do that. And in Daniel chapter 4, verses 29 through 37, we see how it is that God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a lengthy passage, but it's really worth reading through. And it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace at Babylon, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my might and power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? 
While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Not a good day for him. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, the moment he has this revelation, the moment he humbles himself and he begins to bless God, it says, At that same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar had it all. He had everything. God poured out blessing on him like very few people will ever experience. But instead he says, look what I have done. Pride was stirred up inside of him. He thought of himself more highly than he ought to. He thought himself superior to others. He didn't recognize God as the one who was the giver of all of his good gifts. And instead of worshiping God, he worshiped himself and he had other people worship him. So God's solution to this problem was simple. If you don't want to bless the people the way that I've called you to with everything I've given you, then I will oppose you. And it's important to note that in this story, what we see is God doesn't oppose you to destroy you he opposes you to save you. When my kids do something dangerous or bad, I discipline them. I don't discipline them to destroy them. I discipline because I want to restore them to a place of health and safety. Uh, Eason loves going out to get the mail with me. Now, this is very dangerous because the mailbox is on the road. And so what do you tell your kids? Never run into the road. Don't run into the road. This is going to be bad for you. You can only run into the road so many times before you are no more. So when I see him run into the road, what do I do? I discipline him. Not because I'm mean, not because I'm a jerk, I don't have his best interest at heart. I discipline him because I want him to be healthy. I want him to be prosperous. I want him to have a life. And so I discipline him not to destroy him, but to save him. And God operates the same way in our life. God's opposition is meant to be a discipline that brings correction and health to us. He opposes our pride not as a way to destroy us, but as a way to bring us back to a place of where we're humble. We can receive from God and now we can live according to his will and pour his blessing out on others. And just as God didn't leave Nebuchadnezzar living out in the field uh, with the mind of an animal and long hair and eating grass, and that's probably like a salad or something, he didn't leave him out there like that. As soon as he finally humbled himself, he was restored. And it says that he was given even greater blessings than what he had had before.
And that's the way that God works in our life. And this morning, if you struggle with pride, you need to know that God is going to oppose you. He is opposing you. And he's not doing this because he doesn't love you. He loves you so much that he can't allow you to continue to live in your pride. And he will cause you to be humbled so that you can be restored. And the minute you humble yourself before God, it says that he pours out more blessing on you than you ever had before. Remember, pride is the way that Satan's always going to attack us. He's going to stir that stuff up inside of us to disconnect us from God and from his purpose in our life. And so it says that we have to resist the devil. And we have to resist pride. And the way that we resist pride is, number one, we have to humble ourselves. This is something we're always going to deal with. It's something that the human heart has a bent inside of it towards pride. It's never hard to be proud. It's hard to be humble. And what we have to do is we have to make a conscious, intentional decision to lower ourselves. We have to submit ourselves to God, and we have to submit ourselves to others. When we became Christians, you didn't become a Christian because you looked at the kingdom of heaven and you said, all right, it looks like you guys need a savior. Jesus, don't worry. I'll be your new king. I will take care of everything. I have the answers. I've got life figured out. So I'm going to come here and I'll just run the kingdom for you. Now, when we came to Jesus, we came to him because we recognized how big, how powerful, how glorious, how loving he was. And we humbled ourselves before him. We said, God, I submit my life to you. The way that I've been living, I don't want to live that way anymore. Amen. I want to live in a way that follows you. Amen. Everything I am, I submit to you. Yeah. I follow you from this day forward. I'll be obedient to the things that you've called me to do, even when I don't understand. Have you guys ever read the scripture and you see where God tells us to do something and you're like, How, what? What's that? I don't understand that. Yeah. Well, God didn't call us to understand everything. He called us to be obedient to him in everything. My kids, for the life of them, cannot figure out why I won't let them eat jelly beans before bed. <laughs> it makes no sense in their mind. Like, how could you possibly do this to me? You have no wisdom, Dad. Like, you're mean. You're just against me. You don't understand me. But I do have a little bit of wisdom. And it's for their own good and for my good, I'll be completely honest there, that I don't let them do this. And so many things in Scripture I've discovered is that when we submit ourselves to God and we're obedient to Him, even in the times when we don't understand it, the understanding comes as I'm obedient. Not before a lot of times. It's as I'm obedient, as I'm walking after Jesus, submitting myself to Him, that's when I begin to have understanding about that which He's called me to do. So first thing we have to do is say, God, I don't have it figured out. God, I'm not all-powerful. God, I don't understand everything in life. I need you. And so now I submit myself to you and acknowledge that you are higher than me, that you are greater from me, and I am now your servant. And then we have to submit ourselves to other people as well. If we're followers of Jesus, it means that now we follow the way that Jesus lived. And the way that he lived, when he came down, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus, is that he came down and he became a servant of all people. It says, the king of heaven, the Lord of glory, the one who created all things, the one in whom all power resides, he spoke and the world was created. It says that he emptied himself of his glory and his power and he took on uh, the form of a human baby, as helpless, as weak, as anything possibly can be. And then he grew up and he became a servant to others. The one who created all people 
now came to serve us. When we should have been serving him, when we should have been uh, washing his feet, he came to his disciples and he washed their feet. Have you guys ever been a part of a foot washing service? It's the most awkward thing in the entire world. I will never have one of those because there's floaties in the water and it's gross. But having someone wash your feet is a really humiliating experience for you. And at the time, in this culture, people walked around in sandals. They didn't have shoes like we have. So they're walking down the dirty streets. Animals are going to the bathroom on the streets, and they're walking through all this. So you come into someone's home, and they would have the lowest of the low servants or slaves in their house. Their duty was to wash the junk and the filth and the excrement off the feet of the guest. It's the worst job there is in a household. And so Jesus takes and he wraps a towel around his waist like a waiter or a servant, And he gets out a bowl of water and he goes and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. As humble, as humiliating, as disgusting of a job there is, he lowered himself. He didn't say, these people owe me this. He said, I am here to serve and to submit myself to you. And that's the way that we've been called to live. We submit ourselves to God, we humble ourselves before him, and then we humble ourselves before other people and recognize that we aren't here for others to serve us. We're here to serve others. And then the second thing he says is that we have to be sober-minded. Now, when people are drunk, they have terrible judgment. Have you ever noticed that? They do things that they would not have done had they not become inebriated. I knew a guy in high school, and at a party after several drinks, he decided that he made a bad judgment call. He thought, I can jump from the rooftop of this house to the rooftop of the other house. And he still has a really bad limp to this day, because of how severely he broke his leg. Now, he never would have done that had he not been influenced by alcohol that clouded his judgment and his vision of who he was and what he was capable of. In the same way as there are things that will cloud our judgment. They will make us think that we are worth more than what we really are, that we're more superior than we really are, and we will begin to live out a proud life because there are influences that are clouding our judgment. But we need to be sober-minded. Paul says that you shouldn't think of yourself more highly than you are. You need to know who you are. And what are we? We're servants. We're those who lower ourselves below others to serve them. Uh, Steve Green, if you guys have been Christians a long time or grew up in a Christian household, you might have heard this guy, Steve Green. And he has this awesome story about how he learned to be humble. Uh, When I was a kid, there were two tapes that we listened to in the van when we go on family trips. It was Sandy Patty or Steve Green. And I did not like either of those two things. When Sandy Patty tape was done, we listened to the Steve Green tape. But he was this really famous Christian singer. And he was used to getting compliments. People would come up, oh, Steve Green, that was so awesome. Yeah, I know. Steve Green, your voice, your voice is so beautiful. Yeah, I know. And I'm like, Steve Green, you're terrible. What? And so anyways, one time after a concert, someone came up to him. They said, wow, Steve, you're, that was just beautiful singing tonight. Real good job. And he just says, oh, I know. It was all God. And the man stopped and looked at him confused and said, let's not get carried away. It wasn't that good. (laughs) And Steve starts thinking like, you know what? I've allowed myself to think of myself a lot more highly than I really am. I'm not recognizing that this is a gift that I've been given, that I've, I've stewarded and I've used for God's glory, but I've become accustomed to the praises of other people. And that's made me start to think that I'm a lot better than I really am. You know, praise can do two things. It can encourage you in the way that you've used the gift and you've stewarded it and you've used it for God's glory and it encourages you to use it even more to serve God and others. Or it can become something that is intoxicating to your mind and causes you to think that you're a lot better than you really are. A lot of times we're not struggling with uh, pride in areas that we're really bad at. 
I don't struggle with pride in the areas of my artwork. I am the world's worst artist. I have no ability. But I get proud in the areas where I'm gifted and the things I'm good at in the areas where I receive praise. I can start to be like King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm like, is not this sermon I have created wonderful and glorious? Instead of recognizing that this is a gift that God has given me to use for his glory and to use to serve other people. And I'm just honored and privileged that I get to use this gift for a little while. But you know what? All of our gifts is kind of like playing a game. And at the end of the game, all the toys go back in the box. At the end of our lives, we give account for the gift that we have. And how we use it. Do we use it to build ourselves up? Or do we use it to build the kingdom of God? And do we use it to build those who are around us? And then thirdly, it says, be watchful. Now, this is a military term, and it refers to the way that when you would have uh, your, your military group camping, you would set out sentries that would be looking for the movement of the enemy to be able to detect them at the earliest notice. If you didn't have sentries set up to look for the movement and the advances of the enemy, then the enemy would be able to sneak into your camp and completely destroy it before you ever knew what was happening to you. And what it's saying is that you have to be on the lookout for the way that the enemy is going to stir up pride inside of your heart. So one of the things we see David, who was an incredibly blessed man, he's praying, God, search my heart and know me. Show me if there's any wicked way inside of me. And that's why we have to be examining our hearts and saying, God, is there some area of pride in my heart that I've been harboring? Have I been elevating myself over you? Have I been elevating myself over people? You need to be able to detect the attack of the enemy before it comes and destroys you. And then, fourthly, he says that we have to cast your anxieties on him. And one of the biggest reasons that we struggle with pride is because we view ourselves more highly than we should, but we don't recognize it. See, a lot of times when we're struggling, we, we think, oh God, like financially I'm just in ruins, so I have, to, I have to carry this, I have to hold on to this, I have to be my provider. Or when you're struggling in a marriage or a relationship, and you're like, oh God, I have to be in charge of this now, and I have to work so hard to do these things. You're, you're carrying all of these weights, you're carrying all of these burdens, all of these anxieties that are upon you, because you think that you're the one that has to be the provision, the solution, and the source in every area of your life. You know what I struggle with? I hate asking people for help. And that's difficult because I'm not good at a lot of things. If it wasn't for YouTube, I wouldn't be able to do anything. <laughs> but even when I watch YouTube videos and I try to do something, I don't want to ask other people for help because number one, I don't want them to know how bad I really am at things. I want them to laugh and think it's a clever little story I tell at church. No, I really actually am bad at most things. But my pride says, I don't want people to view me as weak. And then in other areas of my life, I feel like I have to be the one that's responsible. But here's what I figured out. Control over your life is an illusion. And it is completely destroyed in one moment, one conversation, one phone call, one accident. Everything can change. And you begin to recognize that you never had control. You never were your provider. You never were your protector or your source in the first place. You just were thinking. You were fooled into thinking that you were. We like to play God for ourselves. And when we do that, when we think that we're God, that we can take care of ourselves, that we can save ourselves, that we can provide for ourselves, it's all the result of pride inside of us. And we don't even recognize that. 
and you carry such anxiety inside of your life. And what Peter is saying here is that if you really are truly humble, then what you're going to do is you're going to take all of the weights and the burdens and the cares and the concerns that you've been carrying and you come to Jesus and you humble yourself before him. You say, Jesus, I can't carry these things. I need you to come and to be God in my life. And I'm going to entrust you with these burdens. And when we do that, the burdens are lifted for us. And the reason that we can trust God is because it says that he cares for us. And this is how I know that he cares for me. It says that rarely will someone give their life for a good or honorable man. Occasionally you'll see someone who will sacrifice themselves for someone that they love greatly. But it says that Jesus, while we were still his enemies, while we hated him, while we despised him, while we rejected him, when we were living as enemies of the cross, it says that he came to us in a, our broken, sinful state and he laid his life down for us. Removing our sin from us. Breaking the bondage in our life giving freedom to us. It says that he's poured out his Holy Spirit in us now, that we have been made into the temple of God, that we don't have to go to church to encounter God, although we do in an incredible way when we corporately gather, but you can encounter the presence of God every moment of your life because now the presence of God is in you and he speaks to you and he leads you and he directs you and he provides for you and he protects you. He is life itself. And the God who loved me so much that he would lay his life down for me when I hated him is a good God. And that's a God I can trust. And I know that he's able to meet all of these needs because he conquered death. He did the one thing nobody else has figured out how to do. He was dead and he rose from the grave and now he reigns and rules over all things. All power and authority is given to him. Every enemy has been made a footstool under his feet. So he has the power, he has the ability, and he has the heart to move in your life. Would you guys stand with me this morning? Let's just take a moment. I think it's so important when we gather together like this that that we just create a space to allow God to speak to us. So this morning, you just close your eyes where you're at and invite God to speak to you. Say, God, what do I do with this now? God, would you show me if I need to humble myself before you. God, do I need to humble myself before others? God, have I been sober-minded about myself or have I been influenced by the culture of this world? Have I been influenced uh, by the praises of other people? Would you give me a clear mind? God, have I been watchful for the attacks of the enemy? Would you reveal to me right now the movement of the enemy and his plans to stir up pride inside of my life? Or maybe you've been carrying anxieties 
Maybe you've been carrying burdens upon yourself because you've never come to the place where you've cast all your cares upon Jesus. You see, this Christian life that we live, this relationship with God that we have, it begins with us humbling ourselves and saying, God, I submit my life to you. You are my king. I follow you now wherever you lead. I follow. And it continues in that. And so this morning, if you need to make that decision to follow Jesus, he's revealed his love to you and his mercy for you. And you've come to the place where you say, I know now that I can trust my life to you and to follow you. Or if you're at the place of where you've already been following Jesus, but you have been carrying anxieties and burdens. And this morning, just as a sign of surrender and humility before the Lord with every eye closed, would you just raise your hand to God as saying, God, that's me. I surrender my life to you. I cast my cares. I cast my burdens upon you. I don't want to carry those things anymore. I want your life. I want your peace. I want your joy inside of my life. That's awesome. Thank you. Father, we stand before you, humble and broken. And Father, we ask that you now would pour out your grace upon us. Lord, that you would strengthen us. Father, that you would take every care and anxiety from us. And would you fill us with your joy? God, would you fill us with your peace, knowing that we can entrust ourselves to you? And God, would you continue to awaken inside of our hearts new levels of understanding of how great your love is for us, how powerful and how mighty you are, and how desperately you want to move inside of our life. And so, Father, we release these things to you this morning entrusting them fully to you. Breathe your life, breathe your Holy Spirit into us this morning, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.